Well, welcome this morning. I hope that uh, as we do with things today in James chapter 5, uh, it'll be a help and encouragement to you in whatever circumstances you're facing. Uh, let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you that you do speak to us of deep things and the realities we face, of the hardships and the joys that we might have. And we pray that we might learn to wait patiently for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I don't know about your week, uh, but it's been a horrible week uh, for me, but even more horrible for uh, two of our 8 o'clock members, uh, our dearly beloved 8 o'clock members. Uh, If you haven't heard yet, uh, Friday morning, Brian Cricket, uh, comes 8 o'clock, was convicted of murder. Uh, He's now in custody awaiting sentencing in late February. Uh, They'll be appealing if they can, but it's a very expensive and lengthy process. Uh, it could be another 12 months before that's even considered, uh, and $300,000 they've been quoted uh, that it might cost them. Uh, they spent all their money on this case so far. Uh, and so it's an awful situation. It's an awful situation for him. Uh, he's behind bars. He's in Parkley Jail. Um, he can have two visits altogether in a week, uh, and so uh, we're not to visit them until we're told... Um, because Julie's going to take both those visits. Uh, if you really, really want to go, you can go with her. Uh, if you ask her nicely, uh, she may want you to go with her. Uh, but he uh, will take letters. Um, at the, the jail said letters are fine. Uh, if you can write an encouraging letter, not just this week, but into the future, that would be really, really helpful. It's an awful situation for him. It's an awful situation for Julie. Uh, as Aaron said to me as we walked out of the court, she waited 53 years to get married and... Now her husband's in jail and uh, it's an awful situation for everyone involved. Uh, there was a group of us there on Friday and we were all stunned at the outcome as it was read out. It was almost surreal. Uh, but the reality is that there now is going to be long days and months and perhaps years of agonising waiting for the crickets and we need to assure them of our love and our prayers and support uh, through the tough times ahead. But more than that, we need to assure them of God's love and support during these times. They are not alone. They have not been abandoned. Some will turn their backs on him, but God never will. But there's an assurance that they need to know even beyond that, or perhaps better, that puts teeth on it. The assurance that, in fact, that we all need to know as we go through this life of tears and we face trials and suffering in all kinds of circumstances. And that is the assurance, the sure and certain knowledge that Jesus Christ who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the judge of all men, will return to bring justice to this world and to bring relief for his people. And that turns the vague concept of the love of God into sheer, stark and wonderful reality. Okay, It's real at that point. Now, I didn't pick this passage for today, as David said. It's the reading that was set out in the lectionary uh, many, many years ago. Uh, which we decided a year ago we would actually follow the church calendar for a few weeks leading up to Christmas. But it almost couldn't have come in a more timely way. Uh, But why should we be surprised when we have such a gracious and mighty God whose word brings light and life? Our section in James chapter 5 is all about bearing up under trials and sufferings in a way that honours our King and Saviour, which is what we as God's children must always do. Now, we shouldn't have to be reminded that we face trials as we go through this life. That's pretty obvious from our experience. 
I mean, everyone here suffered in some kind of way. Uh, may not be that injustice, but you know, illness, uh, other kinds of things, uh, misfortune. Uh, but I'm still finding incredible that many Christians are surprised when something terrible comes along, be it sickness or misfortune or injustice, as if we as God's people should be exempt from or immune from or sheltered from at least the full brunt of it all. God never promised Christians immunity from suffering and injustice. In fact, we need to believe God when he says, as God's people, we will suffer and even suffer greatly, more greatly even than the world. In John 16, verse 33, we heard just a few weeks ago, in this world, Jesus says to his followers, you will have trouble. You're just going to have trouble. Paul, in teaching the new Christians in Galatia, warned that we must go through much tribulation to enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14, verse 22. We're not removed from this world, which according to Romans 8, verse 18, has been subjected to frustration in the bondage of decay, groaning and travailing in pain. And so while we're here in this world, there really is no relief from that. All the books and the seminars, all the sermons and the teachings, all the counsellors and psychologists, none of them together or separately can fully alleviate trouble. It cannot be eliminated from this world. It's just part of it. Everything from a flat tyre on the freeway to the death of a loved one, uh, from natural disasters that take millions... They're just part of the judgment that this world is under. They're a reflection of the fallenness of the world, the fact that the curse of God exists in the world because of sin. But for Christians, there's a unique kind of trouble that non-Christians don't have, and that is the trouble of persecution for the truth of Jesus Christ. We've got to endure the rejection of a hostile society who rejects the gospel and the one who it's all about, Jesus Christ. And James, in the lead up to this section through the letter, has been speaking of examples of the kinds of suffering which God's people endure because of greed, because of hatred, because of manipulation, because of coercion and corruption. But now in our section he turns to we who suffer and he says, Be patient, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. I think it's a tremendous passage and very timely and it's so practical and so direct in instructing us how to act in this world of tears. And I think we're told three things. We're told what we should be doing, we're given the reason to do it, and we're giving some incredible examples to follow. Well, what are we to do? Sum it up in two words. Be patient. Got to be patient. That's the big idea right through the whole section, isn't it? Uh, verse 7, uh, be patient, brothers. Verse 8, you too, be patient. Verse 10, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets. The key thing in the light of suffering and justice 
is to be patient. Uh, A more direct translation of the word would come out as be long-tempered. Basically, it's the opposite of being short-tempered. Be long-tempered. Have a long fuse, not a short fuse. It's the idea of of enduring circumstances with calm, uh, being patient with both the situation and even more challengingly uh, with the people, even the people who might be mistreating you. It's not being full of rage, not giving yourself over to vengeance or being slow to anger. That's more often how it comes out in scriptures, being slow to anger. It's the idea of Proverbs 15 verse 18 which says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the one slow to anger calms a dispute. Or again, Proverbs 16.32, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. And it's not like God's asking us to do something that he's not willing to do himself. God himself is the model of the one who is slow to anger, who is patient. You think of Exodus 34 where Moses is is out in the desert and he's begging that he might just see God to help him keep going in his own struggles. He's just rescued him from slavery but then there's been a mass rebellion and rejection of God. He says, can I just see you? And the Lord says, well, you can't look at me or you'll die but I'll cause my goodness to pass in front of you. And so he hid him in the cleft of a rock and he heard the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious one, slow to anger, full of compassion and faithfulness. And so what James is telling us here is that we are to have the character of God, the character of Jesus who is in his meekness and did not retaliate against those who falsely accused and persecuted him and even put him to death in the end. And we can be thankful that God is so patient, so slow to anger. Thank God that he's long-suffering and long-tempered. Thank God that he has a long fuse because it's the patience of God in 2 Peter that means salvation. If God had a short fuse, guess where we'd all be? Right? We wouldn't last very long and it wouldn't just be we were wiped out. We'd all be in hell. It's not hard to answer. We've been held. But he is long-suffering. He is long-tempered. God is patient. And if a holy God can be patient with unholy sinners like us, then he has every right to say to us, who he's been extraordinarily patient with, to copy him and be patient ourselves. Understood? Pretty basic. But notice, James points out two specific ways this patience will work itself out in our lives. Two ways that being patient will manifest itself To stand firm is to go on trusting God and his promises, to to not give up on being a Christian or to, to stop living in a godly way even when it's difficult, taking God's demands for our lives very, very seriously. It means maintaining the power of your convictions even when every fibre within you is screaming out that God's ways don't work, that he can't help and that you don't want to be his kind of person and, and lashing out and taking matters into your own hands. It is not the way. Standing firm means going to God in, in prayerful dependence. It means going back to the scriptures and, and letting God speak to you and mould you and tell you how how to deal with this and every situation you face in life. And so stand firm. Number two, being patient means 
not turning on each other. Verse 9, don't grumble against one another or you will be judged. I don't know how often you've noticed it in your own life, in your own family, that when you're under stress from outside circumstances, be they work or money issues or health or circumstances, how easy it is to turn on the ones who are closest to you, even when it's not their fault. Anyone experience that? Kind of, you're just grumpy, <laughs> right? Are you the grumpy one or are you the one who's being grumpy with? <laughs> you know, it's your husband, your wife, your parents, your children, perhaps your closest friends who cop the full brunt of your anger when it's not their fault. And it easily happens in churches too. Everyone's getting along fine when the going's smooth, um, but you apply a little bit of pressure from money or uh, other circumstances and all of a sudden Christians are each other's throats, blaming each other, gossiping and slandering each other. This should not be. It is a wicked thing. And God is warning us against it. Be patient is going, being patient isn't going to mean not take, oh, sorry, is going to mean taking stock and not lashing out at helpless victims around us as if they were substitutes or stand-ins for the real problem. And if that's been you, whether in the past or now, maybe, maybe there's some apologies you need to make to those you've turned on for no reason. It's not their fault. And don't just say, oh, when I'm under pressure, you're just going to have to suck it up. No, actually apologise and then ask them to hold you into account because it's not fair and it's not right. And you just might find that they'll love you all the more through the situation, knowing they're not going to be the victim of your rage. And so stand firm and don't grumble against each other. That's the two key ways that being patient in our trials will manifest itself as we trust God. But why should we do it? Why be patient like this? How can God possibly expect us to be patient like that? Doesn't he know what I'm going through? James tells us exactly why we should be patient. Why be patient? Verse 7, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. Or verse 8, the Lord's coming is near. Or again, verse 9, don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you'll be judged because the judge is standing at the door. So three times he says the Lord is coming. Three times he says Jesus Christ will be back. And the church has always lived in the hope of the second coming of Jesus Christ, haven't we? Always. We're supposed to be looking for the Lord Jesus Christ, longing for it, anticipating it, rejoicing in the fact that he will soon return. And it's that sure and certain knowledge that means we can be patient because we know when he does come, there's going to be both justice and relief. Justice and relief when he comes. There'll be justice when the judge comes, he will come as the judge. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. He says he's coming to right all wrongs. He's correcting justice. In fact, to lay waste this world in opposition to him and destroy his enemies. You might recall how often the Bible says things like, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Right? You don't have to take vengeance because God will do it. One of the most famous sermons of all time outside the Bible was preached by Jonathan Edwards in 1741. Uh, it's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. They didn't have podcasting back there, so you can't listen to it. Uh, but you can read it, the full script of it. Uh, in fact, he never even finished preaching it. Uh, people were so affected by it. 
but he preached on uh, half a verse from Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Their foot will slip in due time. The day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. Oh, that's a pretty heavy verse. <laughs> you want fire and brimstone, wow. But that is both comforting and chilling. The world and all the enemies of God and, and his people will be doomed. The time of reckoning is marked in God's secret diaries. That sermon's well worth reading. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. But there's a flip side too. Not only is he coming to judge the unrighteous and the wicked, but he has, has blessing in store for those who are patient. Verse 11, as you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. We consider means, you know, it's, it's common opinion. You know, who are the heroes? Who are the ones you kind of look up to? Are the ones who, who didn't just do what they wanted? There's the ones that stood firm and pushed through and made it through the suffering. Everyone knows the blessed, happy, admirable people are the ones who've endured through the trials. We call them the blessed ones. And what James is saying is we've got to understand not just that's what people call the blessed ones, but God's saying they are the blessed ones. For there is blessing upon blessing awaiting those who are endure with a patient trust in the Lord. For Jesus is also coming to bring relief to his people. There is heaven in store. Salvation. We need to know that that is where we are going to be forever. We know we're going to a better land, a better place, a city whose builder and maker is God. It is not just a nice thing to say to each other at funerals, okay, as if it's an empty epithet, ah, she'll be up there in heaven, mechanic looking down saying, change your oil and stuff like that. That is hopeless. It's pathetic. We need true hope of the right future. It's the spectacular reality that God has not only promised, but that he has proven and inaugurated by the resurrection of his own dear son from the grave. And we've got to hold on to this promise if we're to endure and be patient and to honour him now in the face of all our struggles. Do you believe God when he says in Romans 8 verse 18, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us? Do you believe that? You may be going through a lot now, but it's nothing compared to what awaits. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. What are these light and momentary troubles that Paul speaks of? I mean, he's not going through what I'm going through. He's not got, actually, he did go to jail several times. In fact, the light and momentary troubles he speaks of, shipwrecked three times, snake bite, beaten, whipped, had his head caved in with large rocks and left for dead outside a city for a day before his friends bothered to come and drag his body in, but he wasn't dead. Whippings. He'd endured privations and lengthy jail times. Light and momentary troubles, he says. That's all they are. And it's true. Whatever affliction we endure here pales beside the glory which awaits us in the future. 
We need to hold on to these things and then we can be patient. Then we can stand. Then we can endure. Then we can fight against our own sinful desires and not give in to the temptation to just do what we want to do ourselves and be like we want to be and not capitulate to the world. Jesus is coming. He is coming to judge and he is coming to save. That's why we can be patient. That's why we must be patient. But then finally, James anchors it all with a heavy dose of reality by giving us three incredible examples of patience for us to learn from and to follow. Three examples, the the farmer, the prophets of old, and Job, or Job if you can't pronounce like a Bible reword. But James says, he says, look at the farmer. What is the farmer? That's how you be patient. It's just a simple but but beautiful illustration. The farmer, his chief job, the crop farmer, is waiting. You You dig the soil, you prepare the soil, you plant, and then you might have to wait for months for the crop. If it's asparagus, you might have to wait years. If it's avocado, you might have to wait 10 years to get that first avocado. Patience. And you know, and in the end, the harvest, it is completely dependent on the providence of God because it depends upon God bringing together all the right circumstances to make the crop, the crop good. So many things could go wrong. Fire, flood, disease, pests, wrong soil pH, unseasonable weather. You know, my, um, my late father-in-law, who's a sheep farmer, he said you'd have to be a mug to farm crops and you'd be an idiot. You know, you, you, at least you can move the sheep. I bet the crop farmers are saying you'd have to be a mug to be an animal farmer <laughs> kind of thing. You've got to feed them, you know, birthing. But the farmer waits. He waits patiently in dependence on God. And what is he waiting for? Well, look at it. He's waiting for the valuable crop the precious fruit of the earth. It's valuable to him. He depends on it for his existence. It may well be, if he's a small-time farmer, that this crop represents everything that he's got, his whole investment. It, it may well be that, you know, in the few weeks' time before the harvest, you know, he's down to his last rations and he may almost be fasting waiting for that crop to come in. It's very precious fruit of the earth to him. So if you're going to be a farmer, you can't be like the kid who plants seeds one day and then races up there and digs it up and says, oh, it's grown yet. You know, puts his grubby fingers in the earth and kills the plant when he's trying to see. The farmer is not like that. The farmer plants and then he waits and we've got to have the patience of a farmer. Second example, verse 10. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. You need examples of patience and hope in the Lord. Well, there's any number from the Old Testament James could be thinking of. Think of Moses, who endured a stiff-necked and rebellious people after he just saved them. They didn't want to go. They resented it when he did take them and save them. When he gave them food, they complained. He was faithful and meek and doggedly determined in his persistence. You think of Elijah, whose life was sought by the wicked leaders of Israel, King Ahab and his wife in particular, Jezebel. 
And yet he was faithful in speaking God's words of judgment, even rocking up to the palace when God told him to, to denounce the throne when there was a large bounty already on his head. That takes some balls, doesn't it? <laughs> um, think of Jeremiah who was constantly persecuted yet wouldn't complain but said, why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his own sins? Jeremiah said that in Lamentations 3.39. You think of Ezekiel, you know, having to lie on one side of his body for a year and then the other side for another 70 days, eat food cooked over human excrement. And then in chapter 24, God says, I'm going to make your life a living witness and testimony of what I'm about to do. And what happened that night? His wife died. And he says, I'm about to kill my wife, Israel. Think of Daniel, deported, put in a den of lions but endured with great faith. Hosea, what a, a marriage was a disaster and a heartbreak, but that very heartbreak came the Lord's message to the people that he was so patient and he would love them. Well, think of Hebrews 11 and what it calls us to do, to think of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, who quenched the fury of the flames, who escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. But there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains in imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them and it still is not worthy of them. And they're just some of the prophets of old. They didn't give in to temptation. They stood firm. They persevered. They were patient and we need to be patient like them. And the final example James has for us is Job. Verse 11, as you know, we count as blessed those who persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now, I just happened to be reading through Job in my quiet times the last month or so, and, and Job is extraordinary. I mean, the book's extraordinary, but the, the, but the man is extraordinary. You know, he... He's extraordinary in the amount of suffering that he went through. Yeah, he lost his home, he lost his uh, land, his fortune, his herds. He lost all of his children at once. All ten of them died when the house fell down. And that's just the bit we read. Then he goes on to lose his health. And he sits down in misery while his friends come and say, you know whose fault this is, Job? It's your fault. Ah. You know, good friends. Yeah, <laughs> need friends like that. Uh, but he's even more extraordinary because of his perseverance. Because in the end he does not give up trusting the one who holds his own life in the palm of his hands. The one who holds all our lives in the palm of his The one who holds your life in the palm of his hands. Job does not despise his maker. And he does not follow his wife's evil advice. Ah, you know, loser, just curse God and die. You know? Get on with it. And nor does he try and pretend like none of it's happened and just go on the mask. You know? Instead, in his sadness, 
What did we read? At this, Job got up. He tore his robe, he shaved his head, then he fell to the ground in worship. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And then there's a very important little comment from the author. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Yeah, God's taken it all away. God has every right to. Praise God. He trusted God. He worshipped God. He persevered in faith, knowing that somehow, someday, somewhere, there would be an answer. And in the end, he was vindicated and restored years later. And it's a wonderful testimony to perseverance, which is why James says, be like Job, follow his example. Be like the farmer, be like the prophets of old, be like Job, be patient, stand firm, not grumbling against each other, persevere. Now, I don't know everything that every member of our church is going through right now. I know some of what's happening for some people. Uh, I know for Brian and Julie things are truly awful at the moment. I don't know what the future holds for me and my own family. I don't know what it holds for you and your family. But this I know, that Jesus, the righteous judge, stands at the door and he's going to come through it and he will come and he will bring justice and he will bring relief. He will bless those who have persevered. And when he does, in the words of the great hymn that we're about to sing, because I couldn't think of anything better as a prayer for us to pray, he shall reap the harvest that he has sown and some glad day his sun shall shine in splendour when he, the Saviour, the Saviour of the world has come.